You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopy. Hoopy, what's going on, man? Not much. Just uh, We were just talking. It's late February, and uh, gosh, it feels like this this year's starting to go by really fast. The fact that we're about to get into March. I know. I, I'm not ready for, well, I think emotionally I'm ready for spring weather, but I'm not ready to start cutting grass again and doing yard work. So I have to get myself hyped up for that. <laughs> I know. I look at my yard because there's no snow or anything on the ground here in Salt Lake City. And and I'm going, oh, there's so much work to do out there. But do I think you guys, we got a couple months get, left. Do you guys typically get a lot of snow or is it more dry and, and cold but no snow in Salt Lake City? Yeah. I mean, it takes storms. We don't normally have a lot. And since we're kind of more of a desert, we don't get as much. But yeah, we. I mean, we. I think I've used the snowblower once this, this year so far. Um, and then usually it melts pretty good. But yeah, sometimes we get a pretty good dumping and you've got a, a and snow sits there for a while. But yeah. But right now, nothing. I see just kind of brown grass. And what, what's your threshold for breaking out the snowblower? I'm curious. We had this debate amongst the neighbors here in our in our uh, neighborhood. It depends how heavy it is, because if we get dry, powdery snow, then it's almost pointless because it just blows all over the dang place. Um, so, but if it's the heavier, wet stuff, I would say two inches, and I'm okay. busting out the the snow thrower. We've had some some guys here on our street that I mean, just a little bit of a dusting. I think it's just an excuse for them to get the the snowblower out and get it warmed <laughs> up, but. You know, it's really just blowing, dusting back onto the driveway, not really clearing the driveway. Yeah. So that's what I say. It, it, if it's dry, then it's not as good. So yeah, I like it when it's wetter. And um, but but I mean, there's the idea. That there's been years I didn't pull it out, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I I put fuel in it, got it ready, and so now I got to go get rid of all this fuel or put yeah. some of that um, stabilizer stuff in it so it doesn't so it works the next year. You know, you can resolve all of these issues managing snow removal by just moving south. So. <laughs> Back to Hawaii. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> See, you know you know what it's like. So. Yeah, someday in retirement. <laughs> All right. Well, we, I think we've got a really interesting uh, episode this week. We're going to have a guest from our team, Riley. He's been on the podcast before, but we've brought him back to talk uh, kind of current state with regard to where we're at with contract pharmacy restrictions, how folks are using 340B ESP, and then Riley's got some thoughts around a uh, uh, strategy for grantee-covered entities around alternate uh, grantee site or associated grantee site um, car- contract pharmacy designations. So stay tuned. We'll uh, we'll bring Riley on in a few minutes. Um, in terms of housekeeping, Rob, anything new in the news that you wanted to share? You know, there's not a ton. Um, what I found interesting in the news is kind of, well, okay, well, there's two things, right? We talked about it last time. Um, there's the Sustained 340B Act, um, which is basically an RFI coming out of the Senate, um, which is uh, is asking for comment. And uh, they have some questions that they, they would like help with, which is fantastic that they're asking. And just to remind everyone that um, was it April 1st on April Fool's Day is, is our deadline for that. So I know I've talked to a lot of health systems that have asked about, you know, our are we responding? Um, they'd like to respond. So I think there's going to be a lot of responses. And I just encourage everybody uh to to respond answer the questions and that that would make the most sense for you and your organization and uh let the senate know and weigh in excellent good and i'm kind of scanning some other uh 340b related news i know we've talked about in the past um one one kind of pending 
development at the end of the year last year was the CMS repayment uh, methodology. So Medicare Part B uh, payment cuts uh, were reversed by the Supreme Court and CMS published some information around how the repayments were going to be remedied. Um, Medicare Advantage was excluded from CMS's plan, but we've seen now at least one health system has initiated uh, litigation against the Medicare Advantage plan for previous 340B repayments. Kind of what you had said, I think, Rob, was the going to be the, the path that most covered entities might need to pursue, correct? Exactly. It doesn't seem like the managed Medicare plans are going to voluntarily uh, start paying back uh, covered entities for the reduced payments. And yeah, so I guess this the first one we'll see is this Alabama health system um, suing Humana um, to recoup those uh, managed Medicare payments that they were reduced um, rates on due to 340B. So again, status indicator KNG drugs. So mostly talking about high cost infusions um, that fall in that category. But yeah, I mean, it'll be probably something to think about, right? The longer it gets, you know, the more years or more months it gets away from when that occurred, it might be harder to recoup. So anyone who has identified a large amount and, um, and uh, you know, at least wants to attempt to reseek that, I think at least starting communications with those managed Medicare plans and and I guess there's a little bit of a wait and see what happens with this lawsuit or, you know, do you start your own to to start trying to get some of those repayments back? Yeah. All right. Well, it was good catching up with you. I think one thing we wanted to share before we take a break and bring Riley on is we've got a webinar that we're performing. So uh, Jasmine and Kat from the Spend Men Pharmacy team are going to perform a, a webinar it's, uh, offering CE to pharmacists and technicians on Tuesday, February 27th at 1 p.m. Um, focusing on Excel wizardry. Rob, you're moderating this one. You ready for it? I, I don't know if I'm ready for it since I'm not actually presenting. It's one of those where, you know, I'll, I'll do the questions and I'll and do the introductions. If people remember, or if you joined the last webinar, I was, it was uh, myself and Kat who did, did it. And I think quickly realized I'm probably the wrong person for this. I, I thought my Excel skills were good, but Kat showed me like three things that I didn't know about. And then we also had Jasmine on our team, but we also have, you know, so many other people that are fantastic. Excel, Jim Moy's fantastic at Excel. I've learned stuff from him on Pivot Mike, Table. So yeah, Mike Muir. You know, we've got a lot of folks that are really, Mike, you know, yeah. you know, A plus uh, Excel users, and really, you know, just I, I never, I did not have a true appreciation for how powerful Excel was till I started working in 340B. As clinical pharmacist, really, very rarely had to meddle with uh, Excel spreadsheets. But as soon as I got involved in 340B program operations, I mean, it's the devil is in the details and it's all about your data. So any any tips and tricks I've been able to pick up along the way have been really helpful. So I, just, I got to tell you from when I did the webinar with Kat and, and she taught me all these things that I could do to make Excel look the way I wanted to and duplicate data points and, and revert back to the old format so it's more... Uh, goes across in a roll, so you're not in this hi hierarchical format. That's a tough word, by the way, everybody. Um, and and so so I, I did, I had to do some pivot tables for a couple of cost reports for one of our clients yesterday and so much faster with the tips I learned. So that's why I am now the moderator and not one of the content subject matter <laughs> experts. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're listening to this episode as it's uh, published, we'll have a link to uh, register for the webinar if you're not already um, uh, set up to attend. Uh, but definitely check that out again. It's Tuesday, February 27th at 1 p.m. Yeah, and and if and if you're listening to this after and you didn't get to watch the webinar, um, shoot us an email at 340 at spendmen.com. I hope I got that right. Yeah, yeah. I think okay, so. good. Yeah. It's been a while since I said it. Um, but if if you if it's after the fact, we can get you a recording. We typically keep those recordings around so people can watch or listen to them after the fact. Awesome. 
All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we'll have Riley Protz talking about contract pharmacy stuff. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendmen.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Riley Protz. Riley, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think this is my my third time now. It's been a while, but it's nice to see you guys again. Got your name right this time. We won't read the bio. I don't think we've got a new bio yet, Rob. For Riley, have oh, we? we got to ask Tom to get us a new bio. That was that was some that was creative um, work that he did that last time or two times ago. Yeah, so Riley, we like having you on here because I think you're probably one of the mo- the foremost experts that we have on the team with regard to utilizing 340B ESP and advising covered entities through the challenges of uh, lack of 340B pricing and contract pharmacy. So appreciate you coming on here. We thought it was a good point in time too to kind of just. Kind of level set and understand where we're at with regard to the current state of the various contract pharmacy restrictions. There's a lot of dialogue in the 340B space and a lot of kind of in like developments that are that are brewing that are going to intersect with what we're seeing on the contract pharmacy side. So I thought it was good to just kind of create a current state kind of assessment of where we're at now and then talk a little bit about what some of the mitigation strategies are that um, covered entities should be thinking about to help with the the financial impact of losing access to contract pharmacy. So as of the first quarter here in 2024, we've got 29 manufacturers implementing some degree of contract pharmacy restrictions. And we'll talk about those restrictions and how they have evolved over time. The, the, the nature of the restrictions is a lot different today than it was back in early 2021 when uh, the first large batch of manufacturers started implementing various policies. So uh, not only are we seeing more manufacturers involved now um, in implementing some type of uh, limitation on contract pharmacies, but the way that they're implementing those restrictions has also changed. Um, in terms of how this issue at large is going to be resolved. We've said maybe there's relief from the court systems, and that may not be an, uh, a realistic um, kind of assumption right now. We've got two court cases that are pending some type of judgment. So the Seventh Circuit Court and the DC Court, DC Circuit Court, um, have not uh, put together a judgment on the legality of contract pharmacy restrictions. This time last year, the Third Circuit Court primarily ruled in favor of the manufacturers. And right after that ruling came out, that seemed to embolden some of the manufacturers. And we saw more manufacturers get involved. We saw tightening up of restrictions. So um, if the Seventh Circuit in the D.C. Circuit Court have an opinion that's similar to the Third Circuit Court from last year, we're likely not going to see major relief coming from those two existing court cases. There's also been a lot of state legislative efforts over the last year that have had impact on protecting covered entities from manufacturer restrictions. So right now we've got two states, Arkansas and Louisiana, that have fully enacted laws protecting contract pharmacy provisions for 340B covered entities. And with the um, enactment of those state-level laws, we have seen manufacturers scale back their restrictions. So anywhere from, I think it's like five to nine, depending on the state, uh, Arkansas or Louisiana, we've seen some manufacturers essentially remove their restrictions 
or loosen up the restrictions while they work through challenging the uh, state level laws in the court. And we've got 15 additional uh, state legislators, state legislatures that are actively considering different types of contract pharmacy bills. I think Virginia and Massachusetts, the proposed legislation in those states has already advanced through at least one chamber of their um, their their legislature. Um, but we've got 15 other states that have rallied to uh, draft contract pharmacy uh, laws. And then most recently, within the last couple of weeks, there's been an uptick in discussion at the federal level. So we've got the Senate gang of six um, that put out a legislative draft called Sustained 340B Act. Um, that draft has been circulating. Uh, there's an RFI or a request for information associated with that draft. The senators are asking for information on a lot of aspects of the 340B program, but one area is contract pharmacy provisions. They're specifically looking for feedback on, um, you know, considerations around contract pharmacy limitations, whether there needs to be some type of guardrail put in place for covered entities in terms of how they scale their contract pharmacy program, whether that's geographical limitations um, or limiting the number of contract pharmacies registered to a covered entity, you know info that they're looking for on specialty medication access. We know that there's a lot of vertical integration with regard to specialty pharmacies and PBMs, and that may limit the choice that payers or that patients have to receive or go get specialty medication. So accounting for that, as well as differences in urban landscapes and rural hospitals. So they're soliciting a lot of feedback on contract pharmacy provisions, I think with the intent to codify the use of contract pharmacies under the 340B program. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now. Rob, anything that I missed or any other elements of this this whole ongoing issue that you want to address? Um, no, not that I can think of. I, I think that covers it really well. I mean, that's that's where at contract pharmacy wise, I think uh, you know, the most recent sustained 340B Act is is gonna be interesting, providing that passes. We talked about that last time. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think, um, I think at least for the time being, we, we probably are stuck with it for a little while. And, uh, so trying to understand what are the best options for covered entities is, is probably the, the best thing we can do at this point in time. Yeah. So that's why I'm glad we have Riley here. Cause I think the last time we talked, Riley, you, you had a lot of insight for 340B providers on different mitigation strategies. And I think primarily our focus up until this point has been utilizing 340B ESP. That's the primary platform that most of the manufacturers have designated as kind of like a, a landing place for covered entities to try to work through various exemptions. Um, what are you seeing in the marketplace now as far as different tactics that covered entities have been using to maximize access to 340B pricing when working with ESP? Regarding ESP, I think there's really two main ways to engage with that platform. One is is logging in to simply just do a, a single contract pharmacy designation, um, or through the, the the data submission strategy. And of course, there's different ways to say I want to submit my claims for all manufacturers or just a couple manufacturers. Um, but for the most part, there the it's pretty much split between are you logging in just to do your one designation, then you don't have to check on it again, or are you someone who's going in every two weeks and submitting uh, your claims data? Um, and as we've also heard of other strategies that uh, Carvenies are taking, you know, for example, the alternate distribution strategies that usually it would be a larger health system that would uh, partake in, or even, you know, there's discussion of realignment of contract pharmacy accumulations, um, if you have an in-house pharmacy or, you know, wholly owned pharmacies. Um, but for the most part, I think most Carvenies are still sticking with, you know, uh, engaging in ESP in some way or deciding, still deciding not to engage in any way. Yeah. I don't know, Rob, are you or Greg seeing any other strategies that I know things have been talked about the last couple of years, but not a lot of strategies have come to the forefront that, hey, this is one that, you know, many of our companies are moving forward with. Rob, I'll let you go. 
Yeah, no, I um I, yes, I, I still it feels like with with less opportunity, we're seeing less and less right now um on the 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 hospital side. But um you know, I think there's still some opportunity on the grantee side, especially the FQHC and the, the CHC side, at least from my perspective. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, definitely. And I and I'll like to touch on, you know, the different strategy, this multi-site designation strategy that we're gonna yeah. uh, talk about as well. Um, but yeah, it doesn't seem, you know, we were hopeful maybe, you know, we were just at coalition. You, know, you never know, you know, people are gonna get together and talk about, hey, what are you guys doing? But there wasn't a lot of a lot of discussion around um ways that they're trying to to navigate the contract pharmacy restrictions. I think a lot of communities now are really hopeful that that the state um, you know, efforts are gonna be uh successful. Yeah. Um, but I I think, you know, my conversations with folks have definitely changed since the last time I was on. Uh, we never, you know, formally promoted submitting claims data to ESP, but we just set up the situation saying, "Here, here's the manufacturers that are restricting. Here's, you know, your opportunity. It's a cost-benefit analysis." Um, and today, I think the cost-benefit analysis is very, very different. Right? Um, the snapshot in time, just a year ago, January first, twenty twenty-three. There were around 18 blocking manufacturers for hospitals. And if you submitted your claims data, you got your pricing back at 12 of those manufacturers for all of your contract pharmacies. And now um, we're, you know, with the 29 manufacturers, if you submit your claims data, you're only getting a couple manufacturers. And those manufacturers also have a pretty limited NDC portfolio. And so it's really, is, is there really much benefit um, of making those decisions? And as, as Greg mentioned, you know, I, we really saw the change after that Third Circuit Court decision um, where the, the manufacturers became more bold um, with their policies uh, to, to restricting those claims. Um, and so, you know, as of today, there's there's not a lot of benefit, in my opinion, of you know starting. If you, so, I'm talking to have conversation with folks. It's hey, should we start submitting claims data? And I've actually been been shifting them, saying you know maybe not. Like there's really not a lot of benefit of submitting your claims data. The effort it takes, you know, talking with your your legal and your compliance, as well as you know who's going to be doing that workload. It's it's not something that you know takes five minutes every month. You know, it's something that you have to do every two weeks and takes some people you know an hour or two, depending on the number of TPAs you have. Um, and so the it's definitely a different analysis as we were we were at you know, over a year ago. And that's presuming that 340B ESP ingests and uh, analyzes the data accurately. I know the you know the complaint that I've heard is that the the process is fraught with error. So a lot of times you get errors back from 340B ESP after going through all of the effort to upload data. So so even if it's streamlined um, and working as it's designed, you know we we you know you've only got maybe a handful of manufacturers and a handful of drugs per manufacturer as compared to hundreds of drugs where you could get 340B pricing this time last year. So the the value or the benefit of uploading data really has evaporated over the last 12 months. Yeah, a lot of the manufacturers, at least for the hospitals, who were tracking your claims submitted versus your purchases, um, at this point they're they've pulled away entirely. So that you don't, we don't have that issue anymore because they don't care about yeah. your claims submitted anymore, right? They're gonna they say, hey, please voluntarily submit your claims data, but you're not going to get any benefit out of doing that. Um, but they're happy to, to take that data. Um, but we still see with the grantees, so Sanofi still um, is tracking your, your claims submitted versus your purchases. And we have those issues with, with those TPAs that have a hub and spoke model or a shared accumulator model. And so you're never really going to align um, with your submission claims. So we are you know, handling those those issues um, on a biweekly basis for sure. Yeah. And one, one thing that we didn't talk about the last time you were on, so this is maybe a more novel approach, and th this really applies to grantee-covered entities. Tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with regard to grantee-associated site pharmacy designations and what that is. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so this is a strategy that I've been working on with for a, for a while now that I'm really excited to share with all of our, our grantee listeners. So I apologize for our hospital listeners who kind of have to go along as I, as I rant here for a bit. Um, but months ago, I, I actually practically reached to our our, our own uh, Kubernetes grantee clients to share this knowledge. And so I'm happy to, to share it with, with everyone who's listening. Um, and some of them have decided to move forward. Uh, and some of them have said, hey, let's wait and see what 24 and 24 looks like. Um, but I, just before I begin, I will say, you know, we had a lot of folks say, look, choose the wait and see method with this claim submission. And then midway through 2023, they just finally decided to submit claims to DSP and then it all got pulled away. Right. And so by no yeah. means am I saying, hey, you need to take be an early adopter, but just keeping that in mind is, you know, in these instances, it was it was a it wasn't beneficial. It was definitely costly to to be a late adopter of the, the claim submission strategy. Um, but before I begin, a uh, little bit of education. And so I'm going to read out actually an OPACE FAQ uh, that's important for, for learning difference between associate sites and child sites. Um, so this is, it says an associate site is terminology used by HRSA's OPACE to indicate sites that share grantee grant numbers or a designation number for FQHC lookalikes. Prior to 2017, the, September 2017, these covered entity types had a parent-child relationship. The 340BID numbers of these entity types did not change, only the terminology from parent-child to associate sites. No other type of covered entity will have the associate site terminology. So that's just to say, grantees do not have child sites. They have associated sites that are going to end in an A or a B or a 01 or a 02. Um, so now actually, if you're a grantee and you log in, there's a column in OPACE that lists either parent entity or child site. So it's binary field between the two. Um, so your grantee associate sites are listed as parent entities in OPACE, um, which is important to talk about this strategy. A big distinction between uh, grantee covered entities and hospital covered entities. Exactly. Yeah. And I think this is the main reason why this strategy will not work for your, your hospital communities is because a lot of the manufacturer policy terminology says child site and it's not built correctly in the ESP or the OPACE portfolio profile um, because these are these are basically parent entities for each of your associate sites. Um, so that's terminology that hopefully we you know we at Spendman have been um, saying for a while, but I had to, I definitely had to you know change my brain a little bit in the last year and stop using the word child site when I'm talking to, to grantees. So I will be only using the term associate sites moving forward. Um, all right, so grantees that don't have, so grantees don't have child sites, um, they only need associate sites in the manufacturer policies, right? We've talked about this. They state, if you do not have an in-house pharmacy, then you can make a single pharmacy designation to one contract pharmacy to receive the 340 pricing. And so here's the background. Here's the strategy. If you have multiple associate site locations, you can designate a contract pharmacy for each of those locations and return the 340 price at all those block manufacturers at all those designated pharmacies. Um, so let's, let's let's think about that. How does that actually look? So let's say you are a grantee covered entity. You have 10 associated sites and you have 10 contract pharmacies and you have zero in-house pharmacies. So as of today, you can go into the ESP portal and you can choose your, your your biggest, your best, your best, you know, whatever you have a best relationship, contract pharmacy and receive your 340 pricing at that one contract pharmacy. However, in this future state, at the end of this project with this strategy, you can have each contract pharmacy designated to each of your associate site locations because these are their own parent entities. And so you can extrapolate from the manufacturer policies that you're allowed to designate one pharmacy per associate site location. And you'll get, you'll be able to go into ESP and designate all the blocked manufacturers of which there's around nine um, and get your pricing back at all of those contract pharmacies. Um, and so hypothetically, theoretically, right, you're going to see your 340 pricing 100% returned, right? All of your contract pharmacies are going to have all of your NDCs unlocked. Um, that ESP, you know, relays that information over to your wholesaler, who then relays that information back to your TPA, um, and then everything is is all nice and easy. Um, 
hopefully that was not too confusing. Um, and unfortunately, it's a confusing uh, topic to explain and it's, it's confusing to carry out as well. It's not a simple, uh, hey, I wanna flip a switch and I'm, I'm ready to go tomorrow. Uh, so in order for the strategy to work, uh, the contract pharmacy or pharmacy that you wish to designate and those wholesaler accounts need to be tied to and aligned with that associate site 34B ID. Right? So that, that 34B ID that ends in a letter or that 01 or that 02. Um, and so this requires a, a lot of communication with the wholesalers and the TPAs, as well as registration to be completed in OPACE. Um, so most of our Karandis, and this is something we, re we have recommended historically for compliance reasons, just list all their contract pharmacies under their, their main location. But in this instance, you actually want your contract pharmacy that you want to designate listed as a contract pharmacy under each specific 34B ID, um, which requires re-registration on OPACE and you know, waiting for a quarter of time before that becomes live. And then the wholesaler accounts are typically, you know, the billing account is, you know, also pointed to your main location. You want that that uh, billing location to point to uh, your new associate site. Uh, not, I guess, not new, but your your associate site uh, location. So there's a little bit of background work that needs to be done in OPACE, timing to wait for a quarter, as well as some background work with the wholesalers, and of course communication through the TPAs as well uh, to get this done. And in ESP, uh, there's a little bit of configuration you need to do as well to uh, merge and align all of your 340 IDs um, in ESP. Like if you look at it visually, it's a drop down between your main location as well as all of your associate site locations. Um, so quite a few steps. Um, but if we look at this cost benefit analysis again, let me come back to the the cost is is well worth this this theoretical benefit, right? If you're going to return your three forty pricing at ten plus, you know, twenty forty contract pharmacies, that's huge. Um, so uh, we've it's been great. You know, we've been working on this project for a handful of our uh, people we work with um, over the last six plus months, and we're seeing we're seeing it work successfully. And so it's something that three forty BSP allows. The manufacturers are are not you know, restricting this, and so it's um, something we're definitely excited to move forward with a lot of folks on. That's great, Riley. Um, what do you think the rate limiting step is in, in accomplishing this? Would it be the, the OPACE registrations, getting those contract pharmacies registered up under the various associated grantee sites? Timing wise, yes. I mean, that like that can be done, right? Let's say you you want to move forward with this on April 1st, you go in and you make those designation or those registrations. Um, you have to wait until July 1st for those to be live. Um, and then the, the wholesalers have to wait until that time period as well, because if they're going to realign the, the billing uh, uh, 34BID, they're going to have to wait until that's live in OPACE. And so the timing wise, it's the, it just you have to wait a quarter, but yeah. it's very easy to do registration on OPACE. The actual sure. the workload with the wholesalers and the TPAs actually takes the, the most back and forth. The, the, the OPACE registrations are pretty simple. You just have to wait you know, three months. Yeah, I say ask that because you know, right here, we're right kind of in the middle of the quarter. So the next opportunity for a covered entity to proceed with at least getting OPACE tuned up would be April 1st, but that's, you know, five, six weeks away from, from now. So, you know, if you say, I'm going to wait on making a decision, you decide late May or let's say late April, uh, let's, let's move forward. We, we think this makes sense for us. You're going to have to wait until July to get those registrations complete. And then you won't see any savings at least until October. Well, you wouldn't even see savings until, you know, November, December, because you have yeah. to do the designations sure. and then they accumulate. And then, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's 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 a minimum five month, I think, to, to actually see, you know, either, you know, savings for the patient. Right. Because there's a lot of the, a lot of these companies are wanting to make the strategy so that the you know the patient can, can get their drugs again at these specific stores that they no longer have through for pricing mm -hmm. um, or just, you know, just for the, the company that's been you know budgeted for these savings for the last couple of years that, they, that they've been missing. It's a, definitely a, at least five months, I tell folks, before they actually are going to see some financial benefit for sure. Rob, I'll ask you this. Any compliance concerns with doing this? 
You know, not that I can see, uh, you know, and it's, it's you know, it's like Riley kind of talked about it, just the way FQHCs or CHCs are set up in, in, in the database is different. That's why, that's why you know, any hospital is listening, if you're like, well, can we do that for our child sites? The answer is no. Yeah. Um, that it doesn't work for the um, hospitals because those child sites are child sites where, as Riley mentioned, the CHCs, they're associated sites. So they're sort of kind of almost they're different than child sites. And for that reason, they, they can be set up as individually. So I don't see any compliance concerns other than, um, you know, just making sure that you do get them registered under each site, right? Um, so that's, that's where I think, um, you know, Riley's expertise here becomes really important because if you just register, try and do that all under your main site, is that what we're calling it, Riley? The, the, the OG site? That's what I'm using. I'm trying, yeah, I don't want to say parent, right? Because I'm saying right. that, yeah, OG, OG, sure, that works too. Yeah, that's the unofficial term, everybody out there. Um, the original site. Um, and uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I can't see any compliance concerns at this concerns at this time, other than just make sure you do it. Aside from manufacturers, at some point maybe pushing back, right? That I could see yeah. that being the next step where manufacturers, well, even for CHCs, you're allowed to have one. But I don't think I've seen language like that yet. Um, and and my guess is the manufacturers are also less um con not less concerned, well maybe less concerned about the CHCs, right? They know that that's a heavy Medicaid population, heavy charity care population. Um, you know, in some cases they are being impacted, you know, not all of them, but uh, it feels like there's a little more leniency towards them. So I'm hoping that this, this is okay, an okay practice, not to mention, you know, we previously mentioned the, the, the Senate sustained 340 Act proposal, there is some language to add it back. And so, um, if that's the case, um, I, I wonder how much, um, effort, uh, manufacturers want to put into challenging something like this, because it seems to be a nice, happy middle ground that people can live with. I will, I will add, Rob, the Lily's most recent update did in, include around one sentence that said that I think is potentially might be uh, detrimental to the strategy, saying that, you know, they they think consider all sites together as one community, including all nice. parent and child sites, as well as all grantee sites. Um, we have not seen the other manufacturers adopt their policies. I mean, are, I mean, are they really going to, you know, do a whole new policy update just to add one more sentence that was going to limit, right, limit these grantees? So I'm hopeful that this is, you know, intended by the, the manufacturers, right? ESP has built their their portal to allow this strategy. Um, this is something that you know AstraZeneca was allowing before they moved to ESP. You had to just send a letter in, and they give you pricing at all their contract pharmacies. So this is something that that you know is definitely you know allowed at this time. And potentially, though, you know Lilly is going to restrict this as well as other manufacturers moving forward if they update their policies. But as of today, um, it is successfully working. All right, Riley, this is really helpful. Cleared up maybe my misunderstanding of how this worked. So. Um, you know, and yeah, you, know, you mentioned it earlier, you know, I think, you know, there was a point in time when people were kind of wringing their hands, wondering if they should upload data to ESP and all of a sudden manufacturer strategies changed and that option went away. So I'm typically a, a watch and wait kind of guy. I usually drag my feet a little bit when making big decisions like this, but you know, in the current climate, this may be a scenario that you want to entertain sooner rather than later for fear of uh, not having this opportunity available to you in the past or in the future. Definitely. And as, as I had mentioned, you know, this is this is something that we're helping folks with, right? I've unfortunately become the, the ESP and the contract pharmacy expert over the last couple of years. And so um, I think that because the benefit is so large, it's it's vital to have a project manager on this complex, uh, you know, 
project. And so if it's something you can do internally, that's great. Um, but, you know, if there's if the risk of error is, you know, in a five or six figure area, which I think it would be in, in for this strategy, I think it's important to, to make sure you're you're not having those errors and you have the right people at the helm. Um, and so if anyone if this is new for anybody and they're looking to have, you know, just say, hey, let's let's have someone else help out with this. Um, we have a, you know, a service support service where we, we become the project manager, you know, and we'll help you, uh, you know, move along in this strategy without uh, any errors. And, you know, this is not brand new information. I know that there has been some communication distributed nationally around this specific strategy, but I think, you know, I'd be the first to say that I think there was an, an error in any communication that was previously provided that, you know, you could not do this if you had, if you, if you have an in-house pharmacy, um, but you are able to do this if you're a grantee with an in-house pharmacy, uh, just not at that location, right? If we're treating every single associate site location as a parent entity um, and your zero one location has an in-house pharmacy, you would not do a, a designation at that specific site, but you could still do it at your following sites, which we, and we've had success with multiple clients doing that. And so I just wanted to clear up any confusion for folks who previously thought, hey, this wouldn't work for me, um, you, possibly it will. And so if you're interested, uh, you know where to find us. We're happy to help. Awesome. Well, Riley, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I'm sure we'll be relaying some interest from folks out there listening that want to talk more to you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you the next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 